New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is John Sang. Professor Sang currently teaches marketing management and is the Sai Wan Sai professor at the Wharton School. His research focuses on targeted pricing and other pricing strategies, competitive strategies, market entry, and channel and retail management. We're going to focus our conversation today on cryptocurrency and NFTs. Thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. First of all, I want to talk about the point of view for this conversation, and that's one of a marketer and marketing and not economics and finance. Can you share how a marketing perspective is going to be slightly different? Well, if you're an economist, if you care about the pricing and the reason is because pricing is a signal for you in terms of whether or not you should engage your economic resources in certain activities. Most economists talk about invisible hands. And when you talk about invisible hands, you're saying that there's something in the marketplace that guide the decisions on the part of the firms and also part of the consumers in such a way that ultimately the economic resources in the society will be efficiently allocated. Those invisible hands are actually prices. So the economists essentially care about the prices because you want to see how, in fact, the prices would help to help an economic system to allocate the resources in an efficient way. That's what the economists worry about. We as marketers, of course, that we care about how the firms go about setting their prices in such a way that they can capture part of the value and so that they can keep their business license, which means they can actually make profits and keep themselves in the marketplace and serving the customers. So the focus for us is a little bit different. So that's why we always ask the question that where exactly the value for your product come from? If you provide a service to the people in the marketplace, you have to ask yourself from exactly where the customers derive value from your service. If you can quantify how big that value is, what's the nature of that particular value, obviously that you will find a way to capture part of it. That's really the important thing for us. I teach pricing classes here at the Wharton School, and every year we have people taking the pricing classes here. And one of the questions they always ask is, why exactly the Bitcoins worth so much? Right. If you look at the Bitcoins, it doesn't have the Garmin backing. It doesn't have any kind of intrinsic value. At one point, the price went all the way up over to $60,000. What's going on here? Why are people willing to pay anything at all for a product like this? So I, as a pricing professor, have to be able to answer that question. And that's the reason why I look in this direction. It's interesting because in conversation with TechCrunch, Bill Gates lumped NFTs in with cryptocurrency, saying both were 100% based on greater fool theory. That is, it doesn't matter what it costs as long as someone will pay more for it. And in 2020, 
Warren Buffett said, cryptocurrencies basically have no value. You can't do anything with it except to sell it to somebody else. If we were to grossly simplify things, would the headline be that you agree or disagree with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates? Well, obviously, it's very, very difficult to totally disagree with what they said. <laughs> and I think in a way that they are right, in a way that they are wrong. And uh-huh. the fact of the matter is that the Bitcoin is still there. Even uh-huh. though that the uh, both of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and and uh, want to wish them away, <laughs> and and also they have to look into the fact that the young people are all supporting it. Right. And you have to ask yourself the question whether or not you want to bet against the young people. Right. So, for instance, I would never bet against Bill Gates when Bill Gates dropped out of the college and then and right. then decide to develop the software. Right. Well, it's interesting that, you know, to back up, if we were going to rewind our conversation just a teeny bit, because you link NFTs with cryptocurrency and that's currently done a lot of the time. But why is it? Why are the, why are the conversation often cryptocurrency NFTs? Why are they often bundled together? What is it? that they- I think for a lot of different reasons. Number one, the NFT is based on the same kind of backbone technology that's the uh, blockchain. Okay. And number two, that in fact, that frequently the NFT transactions actually done with cryptocurrencies. I see. And number three, that if you look at the people who work in both and the areas, and they are more or less the same young people who are really enthusiastic about the new technology. They're willing to try different new things and, and so on. So you talk about the same customer customers in both, uh, let's say, industries. It's interesting you say that. You, it's, the, it's the same customer pool. It's the same group of people. And one of the things that is interesting, and you mentioned this, that at its start, Bitcoin was, you know, nine cents and then it, at its height, $69 million. So if someone, <laughs> if someone got Bitcoin when it was nine cents, it's almost pretend money to them. So if it's the same population of people <laughs> and then fine, I can pay $69 million for a piece of art because really to me, it, I feel like it's nine cents because I had, I bought it early or something like that, you know? So, so do you think that there is some of the early adopter play money mentality that might be skewing some of these things? Or or do you see that as, as not say that enough people are currently in who bought when stuff was high, that that doesn't really skew behavior? Well, Bitcoin and is a currency and is meant to be also a store of the wealth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but Bitcoin itself doesn't have any kind of intrinsic value, which basically means that, in fact, that if you believe that Bitcoin is going to do well, it's going to become a currency and a, a store of wealth. And eventually, that if many people believe the same way, it will become the currency and the store of wealth. And if that's the case, of course, that the Bitcoin would have value. Okay, you can imagine that as the originator of the Bitcoin, and which has really some mystery there, and you would think that how we're going to bring all the people into this into this new currency in a way that they all believe in. Okay, and what you have to do is really to provide some kind of front-loaded incentives. 
and to those people, which means that initially, if you're one of those miners, you can get richly rewarded, right? Because right. every time you do the mining, and you get more bitcoins awarded to you, right? And so if that's the case, obviously that the innovators are richly rewarded. You're gonna have a lot of people jump in. When mm-hmm. a lot of people jump in, of course, they, they many more people are going to believe in this. And when they believe in this, of course, the value of the Bitcoin will increase over time. And that's how you can actually close the loop, which means that you start a very small, a lot of people jump into it, and they get richly rewarded with the Bitcoins over time, and the price will increase. You achieve the capital gain. And once you achieve the capital gain, even more people believe in, in, in this. And then, of course, you can sustain the value. So in a way that Bitcoin is really a a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ponzi schemes work until they don't, right? People believe, oh, look at all these people making money, but then it falls apart or, or, or in finance, you know, we no longer have dollars tied to gold. It's not that anymore. It's an idea. And so when people get nervous, as we've seen in banking, for instance, right. you know, people start getting un- unsure about how things work. So if Nakamoto created Bitcoin to take financial control away from the financial elites, and that this is this idea that it's going to be available to the unbanked, to these early users, and is that part, is that a true descriptor part of the value or is that just kind of a faux brand value that no longer has any meaning? I think that there is some real value here and there is some real value here simply because if you look at the US dollars, right? So okay. just a piece of paper right. and that piece of paper is backed by the, the US government, full credit of US government. Right. right. And, and and then of course everybody believed that the U.S. government is is the trustworthy, and because of that, you're willing to use U.S. dollars to do transactions. You're willing to put the money into the U.S. dollars as a store of wealth. I yeah. see. I see. But the problem there is that over time, for instance, the government will take a lot of different actions to print out more papers. Right. Right. If they print out more papers, of course, that that would debase whatever the dollars you're holding. And basically, the inflation would actually reduce the value of what you're holding. Right. Mm. And there, that there is an issue. The issue is basically that there is not a whole lot of trans- transparency. And in fact, the government can indeed, if they want to, and the print out more money. And in fact, the government, if they want to spend more money, they can actually just print out more. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So because of that, you can imagine that. And some people were thinking that why do we need the government in the middle? Right. Why can't we have a distributed trust and distributed trust in the sense that so many people, we make this transactions very transparent. Everybody can see it. Nobody right. can single handedly change it. OK. And, and in fact, the supply of the money is fixed. And we right. we're not gonna increase the you only increase the money in certain way. That predictable way, okay? right? And all together, the only twenty-one million and bitcoins, and now that the ninety million of them and are already mined, and so you have a very few left, and so which basically means that the increase of the money and is very predictable and well into the future. Right. Right. So given that, if you believe that this is something that we can use to do the transaction, we also know that because of the supply is not going to increase, we can preserve the value. If collectively we believe that this is a better instrument, you can imagine that this thing can last and and, and go forever. Right. Well, then how come 
people develop, I mean, you looked at Bitcoin very specifically in your paper, but there are other, there are other cryptocurrencies. Are they all essentially the same in terms of how you look at value? Would that apply to all cryptocurrencies? If you look at look into the history of currencies, and and you can see that in fact frequently that what serves as a currency doesn't have to necessarily have an intrinsic value, right? So, for mm-hmm. instance, Seychelles uh, used to be used as a currency and in some regions, and right. so it's really not that the Seychelles can do anything for you, and it's just basically that it's pretty rare, and for some of the inland regions, and and so they use that and as a currency and make the transaction much more convenient. And so you don't have to carry heavy stuff. You don't have to take a ship and try to barter with somebody, right? So that would be very, very inefficient. And so because of that, you can imagine that even though that the Bitcoin and doesn't have an intrinsic value, but it does have the scarcity. The scarcity in the sense that you have a fixed supply of the Bitcoins. And also that on the other hand, that is also very transparent and based on a very solid technology. And that technology really guarantees that nobody could unilaterally, single-handedly change the accounts. Right. Right. And so because of that, when you invest in the Bitcoin, you just know that it's very difficult for anybody and to fake a new one. Right? It's very right. difficult for somebody to take your Bitcoin away from you. And if you do the transaction, everything's going to be recorded and so on and so forth. That really increases your trust in this currency as a, as a way of storing the wealth, as a way of and doing the transactions. And for that reason, in fact, that you would use that as, as you would, the collective beliefs would give the value to the Bitcoin. I see. So, but which in turn basically means that what Warren Buffett said, what Bill Gates said, probably, and have some reason. And the reason is basically that if the belief system collapses, right, right, there's nothing really at the bottom. And you basically can go all the way to zero. Right. But the same thing can be said about the U.S. dollars. Well, I was just going to say that could be said (laughs) of any currency, because if if faith, if faith, it just the argument there is how fragile is the faith in the thing that it's pinned to, I guess. Right. So it looks like that a lot of young people believe in this blockchain technology. They really think that this technology is very solid and in fact that is very secure and also is very very transparent. It is something that is very difficult for anybody, including the government, to manipulate. And so given that, all those advantages, of course, will give Bitcoin a, a very special, unique position and as a currency. It's interesting because it is very unique, and yet the price fluctuations are extreme, right? That's true. And you can see why. And the reason is because typically the price for any anything is always dependent on and the supply and the demand. Right. So in the case of a Bitcoin, the supply is more or less fixed. And so which means that the price is really going to depend on the demand. And if a demand is up, obviously price is going to go up. If a demand is going down, the, the price is going to go down. Right. At one point, demand was huge. Everybody was so enthusiastic about it. They really think that Bitcoin is going to take over the world. Of course, that price went a sword. 
mm-hmm. and it went all the way up to sixty thousand some dollars. And but of course, that the when demand is down and when people begin to when the scandals break out and when some of the people basically begin to lose confidence in this, and some people move it away. Institutional investors are scared away, and so on and so forth. So of course, that the demand is down and the price is going to come down. In fact, this is probably going to last for for a long while. The you mean the wild fluctuations, you believe? Will. Fluctuation will last for a long while. The reason is because it's just so difficult to predict and the demand. The demand and it really depends on lots of different things. And it depends on regulations, it depends on the macroeconomic conditions, and depending on the risk, risk tolerance, and depending on the education of about the cryptocurrency out there, and depending on the media, and for instance. So because of all that, you can imagine that the price the price can actually fluctuate and uh, and probably for a long time. Well, it's interesting you commenting about youth because all the survey data that I've seen is that yes, the younger people are more interested in cryptocurrency. It skews more to young men than young women, but they're interested in it. They they want to, some of them are open to being paid in part of it. And they it's almost though the gambling aspect has seems to do a little bit with a a feeling, and maybe this links with a the original, you know, reason for creating Bitcoin, but it almost seems like they feel like they're financially boxed out of so much that this is, this may be a gamble, but the swing might, they might catch that upswing, that this could be a way that they could catch up. Um, well, there's definitely something true in what you just said. And I think that you can take this as a gambling by the young people, but you could also say that the young people, obviously that they are more receptive to new things. Right. They probably are less tolerant of the abuses in the past. And we, at an old age, we get used to a lot of abuses. And, <laughs> right? and so I think for young people, they're probably less tolerant of all that. And so they are less patient. And, and so in that regard, obviously, that they tend to be the innovators. They're going to embrace a lot of new things. But if you look into the history, you see that every new generation of young people, they always and, and change things in their own image and vision and ultimately to the good of the humanity. I think that is just very, very difficult for anybody to bet against the young people. Right. Well, now shifting over to NFTs and thinking about the value of NFTs. And even though we've talked about NFT value being related to cryptocurrencies because it's the same pool of people and who are investing and often they're paying with cryptocurrencies. In your paper, you say that thinking about the value of NFTs is is different from thinking about the value of cryptocurrency. Why is that? Well, because for the Bitcoin and the value there really and depends on the collective beliefs of the people okay. and in the in the Bitcoin as a media of exchange, as a store of value, right? Okay. So collective beliefs really matter here. And for NFT, of course, that is more a private consumption. 
right? And for instance, that you probably like a vegan food, and I like, let's suppose, a food with some meat. And and it's hard to tell, hard to say that whether or not, and 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 somehow that, and and your taste then should be is better than mine, or my taste is better than yours, right? And so if I'm willing to pay, for instance, ten thousand dollars for a picture of a monkey, and and I really enjoyed it. Right. And who's to say that, in fact, that that person should not pay that price? Right. So it's it's that each NFT is, first of all, they're unique. And then the value is private and specific. Is that private? And also that if you look into it, which we which I did in the paper, that it really has a lot of good rational reasons for people to buy the each one of those NFT. In some cases, for instance, that people's first what is 5000 days and that particular collage of the electronic arts that he made. Mm-hmm. And and for that one that people pay the $69 million, I think there is a very good reason why people will pay that kind of a price because people was a very has been a very, very creative electronic artist. And he created a different electronic art every day for 5,000 days. Just imagine how difficult right. it is to do all that. Right? Not only that, he has a huge following and on the internet. And you can well, imagine that if you put all your arts together in one place, and of course, that's going to be a museum piece at one point. But it is tied to who he is. If we're talking about collective beliefs, there's a certain level of collective belief around him. Right. Yeah. And so Jane Smith, digital artist who's been making digital art all her life, she could yeah. have 5,000 images and nobody yeah. would be paying $69 million. Well, wow. by the way, there are some actually really interesting examples. And I remember reading something about a Thai student, I think that somebody in Thailand, and he was basically imitating the same thing. And, and he took a selfie every day when he was in college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, then he put it together as a collage and sold it for $2 million. There are other NFTs, you know, the Bored Ape Yacht Club, mm-hmm. where they're just bored apes. But there is also a utility piece. I discussed that in the paper that for Bored Ape Apes, and you see that who are the people who are buying this, right? There is mm-hmm. a limited number of those apes. And not only that, you have a lot of celebrities purchasing it. And not only that, there is a lot of offline activities that you can participate in if you own one of those apes. Right. Right. So essentially that it's almost like somebody paying a price for joining a country club. I mean, then to many people, you would say, well, what's the point? Right. And but many people will get a value out of that and interacting with the people at the country club. And feel proud of the fact that I own one of those apes. Uh, I'm one of the uh, one of the people who can actually mingle with those celebrities. Well, if you think about your more traditional work around pricing and right. people and behavior, there is a piece of that which is identifying, you know, what tribe you're a part of. You're the bored ape. These are I'm this kind of person, and these celebrities, these influencers, they bought these things and I'm like them. I'm part of that. Oh, absolutely. I think that if you look at how much people are paying for the for Birkin bag, right? The most expensive Birkin bag uh, today is worth half a million dollars. It's made of the Himalayan crocodile skin. 
And I can imagine that if you hold that bag and take that bag on the street, you're going to have a lot of people turning their heads, right? You surely feel a lot more confident walking around. (laughs) That's the value. Right. And I suppose then that's also with that particular something like that, it, it becomes an investment in and of itself, which goes back to the to the greater fool theory. I mean, isn't everything in some regard a greater fool? (laughs) You know, in previous conversations I've had around NFTs, especially when it came or comes to marketing, they're talking about NFTs, not so much as a monetary product, like a bag, but as a marketing relationship opportunity, you know, Mm. that this can become a way to build experiences, to engage deeper, to share the brand, to to engage with people and to build a, a pipeline into the metaverse. It's almost like the NFT is free. You buy you buy the, the real world kicks, you get an NFT kick, so then your avatar can wear them in the metaverse, but then where people are wearing Nike in the metaverse or what have you. Now, if you're thinking wearing your marketing hat, as a brand, when considering, when thinking about NFTs and considering price, how should they value the benefit of a deepened relationship. Should the NFT be free because you get a better relationship or should the NFT be costly? Because like the Birkin bag, people almost know how much they should value something based on the price point. How should they think about the the piece of the NFT that has that relationship building component? Uh, I would say that there are lots, lots of good opportunities for marketing companies and and they can definitely use NFTs and, and to do many different things. And so we already see that, in fact, some of the companies that will introduce their products only in the metaverse and where basically that you can imagine if you design the product product for metaverse, you're not constrained by the material and you right. use, and you're not confined by the safety concerns in designing your product. You can become a whole lot more innovative. And so there are already some collector's shoes that are the Nike for instance, will sell and online, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, that those products are not really available offline, and somebody because and you probably cannot wear them anyway, <laughs> based on the design they do, right? Right. And so that's one benefit to the to the brand companies already, basically that they can introduce the sort of a new products in in the virtual world and then do the in-game purchases and then all that, right? You can imagine for fashion business, you can do a lot of that, right? Right. It, to that, you also can do a lot of marketing research and in the metaverse world, right? Somebody because, and if you design a new kind of a clothes, for instance, new fashion, and you put in the metaverse, of course, that people will interact. You're going to see that, in fact, that if it's going to take off, it does take off, and then you can actually sort of move offline too. So you're going to uh, merge your in and online, offline worlds and in developing your your market and in doing your marketing research. Certainly, like what you were saying, that indeed that as a brand company, you could increase the involvement, the interactions with your customers to, to, to do a better brand building and with the what do you do in the metaverse space. Right. Now, question, and I'm just not as familiar with how NFTs work, so you may or may not know the answer to this. But if we think about secondary markets like that used Birkin bag, Hermes didn't get a cut of the resale of that. With an NFT, does the originator, like when Board at Yacht Club 
they sell to somebody and that somebody sells it on, do they keep a relationship with that person, the next buyer, or is it cut off? Do you know? That's actually a good question. You can imagine that if you buy a broken bag and of course, later on, you don't like it anymore, you're going to sell it somewhere, right? Right. Obviously, that the luxury brand has no control over what you do, right? You can sell to anybody, anywhere, and then because that's yours. Right, right. Right. And when you sell, obviously, that the original company is not going to get any part of it. Right. Right. But now that everything is recorded in the blockchain, and you can imagine that you could have a smart contract where when I sell this Bergen, let's say a virtual Bergen bag to you, and I can actually put in the contract that in fact, that I'm gonna sell you this low price today to you. If you do the transaction in the future, of course, you have to give 20% of whatever transaction price that you, 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 you're gonna oh, get. Oh, back, back to me. To me. So you can certainly maintain that kind of relationship, maintain that kind of a contact. The reason is because it could very well be the case that your design today is so good, right? And you just don't know that eventually that the value is going to increase so much. And uh, so that you can actually benefit from the capital gain in the future. Right. Oh, that's interesting so, because that's the benefit of having a smart contract. That's actually one of the great benefits about being an NFT as opposed to something else. Exactly. In the past, you have so many starving artists and then after they die, somehow the prices all increase. They never benefit from it. And you can imagine that that could, uh, to some extent, prevent that kind of thing, right? At minimum, that even if you after your death, and then then the value increases, a part of the value may go. Uh, so to your heirs and assigns, right? Because it's exactly. just the way the contract is built. That's interesting. Right. One last question before we go: Your paper was written before Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX debacle, before right. Silicon Valley Bank, which was a pioneer in the crypto space. Would would it change any of your thoughts around how to value these things, that that sort of bursty bubble thing that happened? Not really. If you look at the cryptocurrency, it is based on the distributed trust. And in this case, that you're talking about a large number of people, a large number of institutions are involved in this particular market. So in any market, you're always going to have some bad apples. And right, they were just bad. People, at, they did bad things. Um, yeah, they do bad things. Did bad like things. Madoff and did these bad things. And for the uh, Bernie Madoff, I did the bad things. And the investment market, that didn't really wipe out the whole investment and activities. Right. Interesting. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting. I really appreciate it. And I think the biggest takeaway for me was the collective belief supporting cryptocurrency and the ways in which NFTs are slightly different, even though it's related. I thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team about next, my friend Rob Not in the Voice Arts who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.